0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Felix Martin, who is a columnist for Reuters and also the author of this book right here, Money. The Unauthorized Biography. Welcome, Felix. Thank you very much indeed, Greg. Look, I really enjoyed this book. And part of it's because it has a lot of the stories in it that I like to use in my finance classes. And it also represents a perspective on finance, which is, I think it's something of an outsider's perspective, even though you've been a practitioner in this field for a number of years. And by outsider, I mean you point out that... (laughs) The fish are the last ones to really discover water, okay? And I think this is essentially a commentary on the people who are in the world of financial economics. And you talk a little bit about this thing called this intellectual apartheid, where economics seems to be a field that evolved without really having to take money very seriously. And if you really want to understand money, you say you have to understand a bit of economics, but you also need to understand a bit of history, a bit of sociology, maybe a bit of anthropology, maybe a bit even of philosophy or semiotics. And so I guess part of what we'll talk about is sort of how that kind of came to be, because it it is history. But maybe we can just start off with your key point, which is that a lot of people think of money as a thing, but in fact, it is a social technology or I think John Searle calls it a social reality. So I guess, you know, why is it that this distorted view of money has come to be the common view? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And I don't claim to
1: have solved that completely in my book. It's a kind of conundrum you can ask about a lot of different social phenomena. Now, it happens that money is, in my view, and I think a lot of people, when they think about it, it's probably one of the most important social phenomena, social institutions, Communal fictions, as Yuval Noah Harari, you know, the author of this great book, Sapiens, he calls them. He says, you know, this is the distinctive thing about human beings. We have communal fictions that can be anything from a company, which is not a real thing, doesn't exist, but obviously it does, you know, has legal reality and it's very important in our lives, to something like the institution of money. And the question about where these things come from, why people, start to think about them as if they're more real than they are. Why, and this is really the point about money, why people might start mistaking the tokens that represent that social communal fiction for the thing itself. And that's, of course, what we talk about when we talk about money. You know, historically, it's very easy for people to mistake coins, for example, which are a token of some social relationship, monetary financial relationship, for the thing itself. It's a really interesting question about why this happens. I'll give you a couple of candidate answers. One is sort of purely intellectually, people kind of somehow make a mistake, but it's not totally convincing that, and therefore a kind of more Marxist theory would be it's all to do with vested interests. Some people out there have a vested interest in the conception of money as a thing, rather than really getting at the underlying social relations. Now I can tell you the answer I give in my book, I do actually think it's a convincing answer. My book is, obviously, it's a kind of history of money, but because I believe that money is a social institution, it's a communal fiction, then a history of money is not a history of coins and notes and that kind of thing. It's an intellectual history. It's a history of these ideas and these institutions and where they come from. And I trace the modern confusion, the confusion in modern economics about money back to this very important debate that happened at the end of the 17th century in Britain. And this was a debate really at the time when banking was being rediscovered in modern Europe and developed. And it was the time when the Bank of England was just being founded in the UK, 1694. And there were very different interests involved in this financial revolution, as it was called. There was a group of merchants, supporters of the Whig political party, who were very keen on introducing these Dutch financial methods. They were financial institutions that came from the Netherlands. And there was a Tory, that's a different political party, Tory landowning class in Britain, which was very suspicious of these new financial ideas. So there was a political struggle going on. And it was all tied up with the fact that we were trying to move towards a constitutional monarchy in the UK. This is when the UK became the kind of constitutional monarchy we have today. So it was in the aftermath of the civil war that we had, which was a civil war between supporters of absolute monarchy, that's identified more or less with those Tory landowners, and supporters of a Republican government, basically those kind of London city Whig merchants. And it was extremely important to try and enable this transition to happen and um, not to endanger it. And so there was a great debate that happened in the 1690s after the foundation of the Bank of England about what should be the monetary standard, how the currency should be managed, whether it should be managed on a metallic standard. So fixing a price on with gold or with silver, which was a very traditional way of managing Money, or whether it should be much more flexible, actually something much more similar to what we have today. Today, we don't have gold standards or metallic standards. We have a different kind of standard. We ask central banks to manage the currency to stabilize it against a broad index of prices. So, this was the same kind of debate was going on at that time. And essentially, John Locke, great philosopher, some of your listeners will nerve John Locke. I mean, he's a great sort of political philosopher, but he had a sideline in monetary theory. And he did so because in fact, the city and the treasury at that time were quite keen on not having this metallic standard or making it more flexible. And Locke believed that this was such a suspicious idea for a population who were not used to these kinds of ideas that, it would, that were that to be allowed, it would endanger the broader political project and he was very invested in the broader political project, of course. He was a great supporter of this Republican constitutional government. And he was worried that if these financiers went too far and tried to introduce a more flexibly managed currency, it would crash the whole project of constitutional government. And therefore, he put out these pamphlets arguing very strongly for a stable metallic standard. And he did so, in fact, not just by saying, as we would today, this is one standard amongst many that we might choose to manage a currency. He made a philosophical, ontological argument. He said, look, when we talk about a pound sterling, it just means a particular weight of silver. And anyone who says it doesn't is just fibbing and, you know, it's all fictitious and it's all lies. So he sort of made this equivocation between the political choice to manage your currency in a certain way, and the actual definition of what money is.
0: Yeah, I think most people don't realize what an important role John Locke played in financial economics. As you say, everyone understands his position in political philosophy, and I didn't realize that he was the original teller of that story of how money came to be, and how it was preceded by barter. I guess he Borrowed it from Aristotle. But I, I remember when I first learned it, I thought it was like Carl Menger <laughs> came up with that story. But if the story just keeps getting reused over and over again. And I've used it in my class as an origin story. And I think if you ask most people, they would say that money started with some type of commodity and that credit came later. And I think you point out, as have many anthropologists, that the system of credit came first and then commodities came in i guess later as measures or indicators or tokens that represented these obligations right
1: yeah that's exactly right now you say this is another way of looking at this the first question you asked it's in terms of the origin story where does money come from what's the etiology of this institution and you're absolutely right yeah you can find that story about the emergence of money from barter in other words the basic idea is in the beginning, there was no money, and everyone was just, uh, you know, I was making fish and you were making corn. And so what do we do? We have to barter with each other. We have to swap these things. And then someone comes up with a bright idea, which is that you know, why don't we use one of these things that one of us produces as a medium of exchange, that is to say, a commodity which we don't swap because we actually want that thing itself, but because we know that we can use that to swap for other things in the future. And that, that in that story, which, as you say, it goes back to Aristotle, you find it throughout the centuries. That thing is just money. And then at some later stage, someone else comes up with another bright idea, which is why don't I lend and borrow this over time? And that's the invention of credit. And then even later, you get these institutions which come along, which specialize in sort of building this superstructure of credit on top of this commodity money stuff. And that's the invention of banking. But as you said, that story is not historically accurate. And I think more importantly, when one thinks carefully about it, it's not logically accurate either, because what money and what financial relationships and what monetary magnitudes measure is something completely abstract. And in that sense, it's no different from all kinds of other ways of evaluating things, services, relationships that we have in the world. There is aesthetic value, there is religious value, and so on and so forth. We're all familiar with lots of different kinds of value. What is different and distinctive about monetary value, and it's very, very important, is that it has this standard unit, the pound, the dollar, the euro, and so on. And in that respect, it's more like physical, units of measurement. So, you know, we have centimetres and inches and we have kilos and pounds and so on. These are arbitrary increments on these scales. So it's a bit like a physical scale of measurement, but it's actually a scale of measurement of value. And that the use of that standard unit is what makes it so incredibly useful for organising activity via the price system and, you know, via markets and so on.
0: And so it seems like our awareness of the social nature of money, it comes to the foreground and then recedes to the background, depending on current events, right? So, you know, your book was written in the aftermath of the financial crisis, okay? And that's that's when everybody started to re-examine what exactly money was. I found that interest in financial history comes in, in waves. And I used to teach financial history 30 years ago, and, and then no one was interested after a while, you know, during... When everything was going well. And then after the financial crisis, everybody was all of a sudden interested in it. And also the emergence of cryptocurrencies. People have begun to take an interest because they've had to rethink exactly what money is. And so your story of the rye stones in Yap and you know your discussion of the tally sticks in medieval England and the Irish banking crisis, those are all stories that I talk about in my crypto class. And because of the rise of crypto, people are super interested in kind of what money is. Do you see this? I mean, what drives in sort of a curiosity about what money really is? Yeah,
1: I couldn't agree with you more. And I mean, first of all, it's, of course, the strange thing about what we were just discussing these conventional histories of where money comes from is that you would have thought most people today, when you talk to young people, they're growing up in a world may not quite be like this in the U.S., but I tell you, in a lot of Europe, it's like this, where they just don't see physical tokens for money. My children who are teenagers, you know, I mean, they just don't use cash anymore.
0: No, it's all ledger entries, right? It's easy to see how it's all just ledger entries at this point, right? Exactly. But what's curious is that even for them, the
1: habits of thought, the theory that underlies, for example, a lot of conventional um, economics, is still sort of based on this conception It was tooled up for a world in which people thought of money as a thing. So I parked that because I think that's one of the so curious. It's even more curious today that this idea of money as a thing has some intellectual power over people. But your point about this new world of crypto and so on, that's, again, absolutely right. It's um, because people now live in this world, it's easier for them to ask these questions. Generally speaking, as you said, it's when money becomes disordered, when you have financial crisis of some sort, that people start asking questions about it. And those crises can be of various different sorts. An obvious kind of crisis, you could say, it's actually a very general description of all financial crises, has to do with the burden of debt, the burden of financial relations which have been inherited from the past becomes unsustainable for some reason or another. And typically, you know, the way out of that is by some, eventually it's by some sort of cancellation, writing down of debts, or alternatively, an inflation as it were a devaluation of the monetary unit and again transferring real value f- from creditors to debtors. When these things happen then it becomes too obvious to everyone that money is in fact just a sort of network of arbitrary financial relations and it also plays directly into that debate which we were just talking about between Locke and Lowndes. Lowndes was the representative from the treasury back at the end of the 17th century about under what circumstances it is politically acceptable to devalue the currency, under what circumstances and for what reasons one would ever want to transfer real resources from creditors to debtors, and alternatively, whether in fact it's a natural right for you as a creditor, for your credit to maintain its real value over time. So that's that, of course, is the great debate running through the whole of monetary history. And it's ultimately much more than just a monetary debate. It's a debate about who gets what in society and how you organize the economy. And it just so happens that this institution at the core of it all, money, is one of the great battlegrounds of that kind of debate. Every time I say this, I sound more and more Marxist in my kind of you know one doesn't have to define all these, you know, the two sides by sort of classes and so on, but it's that's what it is. And yes, I think that must be all of this in a sense should be clearer than ever in an era Where you have, first of all, since the 70s, and in particular since the 1990s, it's easier than ever for people to use not only their own national currency, but other foreign currencies. Again, for your American listeners, this is not um, quite such an issue because, you know, there's never any reason, particularly for Americans to use any other currency. But if you're anywhere else in the world especially if you've ever been to any kind of developing country, you will know that currencies co-circulate. That's really been able to happen since the 1990s with open capital accounts and so on and so forth. But so people are used to this idea, first of all, that there are different monies that can operate at the same time. And then we've had this revolution with cryptocurrency and digital money and so on, where you now have this enormous proliferation of different private monies circulating alongside national currencies. And so, You would have thought this would make it easier for people to conceptualize and think about money as a range of different networks. Of course, at the core, you've got the traditional, national, official currency operated by an official banking sector and networks and so on, very easy to use, very easy to pay with and so on and so forth. But then it's a hierarchy and then you've got lots and lots of different private currencies going all the way from Bitcoin, quite a lot of people use that, all the way to your babysitting circle,
0: chips. Well, you know, I was just having a conversation with uh, Stephen King, right, who wrote the book on inflation, and we were reviewing the Fisher equation, right, MV equals PQ, and that equation tries to separate out conceptually the quantity of money from the velocity of money, where one is the thing and the other is sort of the beliefs about the thing, right, which drives how you behave with respect to money but i think you know what you're pointing out is that you really can't make that clear distinction right because something can become money and cease to become money depending on the beliefs that people have about the thing right so conceptually you might try to keep them apart but as you point out all money is credit but not all credit is money
1: right Now, how techy are we allowed to be? We can be as techy as you want to be. Okay, because I like that. This is, yeah, I've pondered that equation throughout my whole career as an economist. So to me, it's not that the Fisher equation or the quantity theory of money is not useful. To me, all these theories of money, they are very useful for interpreting and predicting, you know, given points in time, but they are contingent. And that's a very good example, that nice, simple equation describing relationships between money aggregates and real activity and so on. They're contingent upon various underlying assumptions. So we can break it down in a couple of ways. One is the M part. What actually is demanded by participants in the economy is liquidity of some sort with which they can transact. And of course, for most times in a normally functioning monetary system where the official national money has a decent franchise, that will be the official national money. And then you can have all the arguments about, well should it be should we be using M0 or M1 or M4 or divisi or whatever? But we're talking basically about the national money supply. But if you take what we were just discussing, a country, which is many countries in the world now, where you have co-circulation of other currencies, other national official currencies I'm talking about, so particularly of dollars, then clearly you have to somehow add that in to that overall definition of money, your M in the equation. And you have to start thinking about what causes people not only to choose money holdings as against interest-bearing bond holdings, but what causes them to choose one money over another money. So that's that part. And then, of course, as I said, then there are other forms of liquidity out there. These days, it's easy to think about cryptocurrencies and private monies and so on and so forth. But different times and different kinds of economic circumstances, this might just be trade credit. You pointed to that point about all money is credit, but not all credit is money. But credit, which is a bilateral relationship between the creditor and the debtor, can become multilateral. It can monetize, it can become more liquid under some circumstances. It's never going to be as efficient as the official national money. But you know, things go really badly wrong with the official national money, happened in the Soviet Union in the 1990s. All of a sudden, the market will find a way. People will improvise money out of something and usually Trade credit is quite a good way of improvising if the creditor happens to be someone to whom you might owe money at some point. That's one thing, the M part. And then you alluded to the fact, what about this V part? That's the part where you can stuff in all these sort of awkward, confounding things about people's behavior and about why it is that at some point they might choose to hold a lot of money and other times they might choose to economize on money a great deal And yes, there, I think there is this great value in thinking about money as a credit relationship. And the the real value is to think about two dimensions. One dimension is the creditworthiness of the issuer. So if you're thinking about co-circulating currencies, and we were thinking about that question, I was just asking, well, what determines whether people use pesos issued by the Central Bank of Argentina or dollars issued by the Federal Reserve? Part of that has something to do with or Patacous right exactly and which was exactly that's just a regional currency or those private currencies. So part of that has to do with your trust in the management of the monetary standard by that central bank, the creditworthiness if you like, of the central bank. And another dimension, I think conceptually you can think of them as different. Some people like to think of them as the same but conceptually I think they're different is the liquidity question. Creditworthiness is about this bilateral relationship between you and the central bank. And then there's also this question of how many other people in the network will accept this in payment of goods or services. And that's this sort of liquidity question. And so these are two factors which are behind that. They're all subsumed under this V in the Fisher equation, but you can break them down a bit conceptually, I think, and thinking in terms of money as credit is useful to do that.
0: Well, I I mean, I think there's another debate that you talk about, which is overlapping, but not completely identical, right, to the debate of thing versus social construction. And that is the role of the sovereign, right? And so on one extreme, you have this Chinese vision of money, right? And then on the other, you have a vision where money emerges through some kind of bottom-up process, right? And so you discuss this sort of back and forth. And I think that the high point of the private conception of money was in the Middle Ages. And I have been talking about bills of exchange for many years, and I hadn't really appreciated the role of the écu de marque, which you talk about in the book. So, I mean, how does that debate tie into the debate about thing versus social relationship? Another great question. So, first of all,
1: one can distinguish the payments technology Payments technologies evolve over time. And one remembers we're talking here about recording credits and debits items on ledgers and then representing them in some form. So this could be centralized. You have a centralized ledger and it's just written down. That would be one form of doing it. But then there are these decentralized options where you have some sort of token which can represent the credit entry and then you can use it. There are innovations through time in the technologies for recording monetary Credits and debits, and for transferring them. And the Ecu de Marc is an example, an early example, of a very successful innovation in payments technology, which enabled a private currency, and that's the part we're going to come to in a second, which is the unit of account, the private unit of account. It enabled that to circulate very, very broadly, internationally, in fact, because. Private monies, they're as old as money itself. They pop up all over the place all the time, but typically they are rather small scale. Typically their circulation essentially is limited by people who know the issuer and therefore trust in its creditworthiness and they know each other and therefore they trust in the liquidity. And so that's why typically you're talking about the babysitting circle chit or the local community currency, script money, this kind of thing. The great innovation of something like the ecu de Marque is... It was circulating amongst a community that knew each other. These were the, the grand merchants of Europe. But they found a way of doing it and a payments technology that enabled this all to happen internationally. And so in that respect, it's sort of a precursor of something like a Bitcoin today, which is really a you know, huge multinational network. But of course, typically, normally, it is the sovereign And in modern times, the sovereign, in cooperation with the banking system, a hierarchical banking system, which has the trump card when it comes to the payments network, it's got everything in place there. And so it's quite difficult to compete with that if you're a private currency. And that's the importance of it. So the importance of it is, first of all, you've got an issuer, which almost everyone at some point... going to owe money to because if it levies any kind of taxes or anything that's going to be so that's a good encouraging thing for network effects but also it has this payments technology it owns the rails that are the most useful and that everyone can operate on but it doesn't none of this is really getting to the heart of the question of money the heart of the question of money is not the um technology for recording the credits and debits and it's not really the technology for payments either those things as we know today certainly these things are all disaggregated and separate in a modern digital monetary system the heart of the whole thing is the monetary unit and the standard against which it is managed the monetary standard the monetary standard is just a summary term which means really the rules which govern the issuance and management of this particular monetary unit and that's a much more interesting and profound question and you mentioned that you know the thing about monetary history is it does have these sort of philosophical aspects there is a tradition as you know very well the chartlists tradition which says look the state is somehow very special and unique and it can control the definition of what a pound is, what a dollar is, what a euro is, and so on, in a way that an issuer of private money cannot. Qualitatively, that they're different. I don't think that's actually really true. It is obviously true that states, governments, sovereigns are different in so many ways. They're so much more powerful, more bigger. As we said, they intermediate so many more transactions that they're clearly very different from almost all private issuers. But those differences are really sort of quantitative. They're not actually, I think, best defined as qualitative. And they're a phenomena. We could come back to the beginning of our conversation. Social phenomena, of which money is just one, social institutions, these communal fictions, to use Harari's term. I like Harari's term, That's by the way, so I keep on quoting it. Really, what are they? We're, now we're getting into sort of political philosophy. What is the state? What gives the state its political power? what gives a company its corporate power, what gives a social fad its power. All of these things is true that no individual can invent themselves, right? I can't just suddenly announce that I've started a new state and I have a whole load of subjects and they've got to obey to me. But it's also not true that the state or the sovereign is somehow magically a real category. These things are all emergent phenomena. They come somehow out of society. It's like language, actually, that's the best analogy I've ever come up with for this. I mean, it's a pretty simple analogy, but just to say, look, money and monetary units and so on, it's just like the language of commerce. And language, we know that the the Alliance Française, it loves every year to give out this list of it. It tries to control the French language. Tries. But we all know that it doesn't really work, and that the purpose of dictionaries is descriptive. It's not actually prescriptive. You can't Control language because
0: language is a social phenomenon and it's emergent and it comes. And well, they can presumably control what what words appear in government documents. right? That's about it. No, no, exactly. And this is,
1: but this and this is that's why the analogy is useful because, of course, it's true that governments have enormous influence on the monetary standard and that when you give a mandate to a central bank that says we want you to manage the value of the dollar such that this particular basket of consumer prices, the the average price of them goes up by 2% a year, or whatever it might be. Of course, they do have a great deal of influence over this. By the way, both the central bank and the government, as the treasury, they have a lot of influence over that. But they don't control it. And again, if you, it's easiest to see if you look at episodes of monetary disorder.
0: Yeah. I mean, Argentina. Yeah, they can pay their employees in pesos and collect taxes in pesos, but they can't really force people to, you know, conduct their business in pesos, and most people don't. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. I mean, so the, when you look at episodes where people have lost confidence in a currency completely, which is where you get hyperinflation, so that's the other side of it. So the currency, the monetary unit becomes worthless. You can see that it's a social process and governments are unable to arrest it when it happens. What I'm saying is that money operates at the level of all these kinds of social institutions, ultimately as a kind of emergent phenomena, comes out of society. It's very much like language in the same way that the meaning of words rests upon some sort of not easy to define social consensus. So the value of a monetary unit also rests upon that kind of social consensus. I would say, in the case of money, that government and central banks, there's a strong institutional infrastructure, they have a more direct effect and are more able to manage the value than it is in the case of normal language. But one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that
0: they're on the same continuum. Well, you know, you talk about the great monetary settlement, right? Which the Bank of England really was the, the establishment of the Bank of England was really the beginning of this sort of quid pro quo between the kind of private money creators and the sovereign and so i was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and also talk a bit about why john locke and john law the two sort of monetary giants of their time only the individually got half the story right yeah so
1: yes and i would urge your listeners by the way to to look up a great book by jeffrey ingham great cambridge sociologist wrote a book called the nature of money back in the early 2000s and he's very good on the great monetary settlement it's really I think he was one of the pioneering historians of that. What he is trying to get across is that prior to that time, you were really in the age of sovereign money on the one hand, and then occasionally these private currencies, essentially operated by the burgeoning mercantile class in Europe. We discussed one earlier, one of the one of the most famous ones, the Ecu de Marc. But most money was sovereign money in the sense that it was literally issued by the sovereign and used to pay taxes, and they would use it to pay mercenaries or the army or whatever it was. And they would devalue it on a regular basis. And they would devalue it on a regular basis, and they could more or less do that because there was not really many other alternatives to use. And of course, that's why when the mercantile classes got going, that's why they did improvise their own monies precisely in order that they could denominate their transactions and their credits and debts with one another without fear of big fluctuations uh, brought about because the sovereign needed to devalue their debts. And that, as we described earlier on, is a great sort of tension throughout all of monetary history and it's closely tied, tied to the fiscal history of all European states and Asian states as well. You typically have sovereigns who are in debt and therefore they have an incentive eventually at some point to devalue the currency and you typically have their subjects who are creditors and then therefore they don't like that. And as the economy became more commercial, which happened in most of Europe in the sort of 16th and 17th centuries, it becomes more desirable for them to, to, more and more desirable for them to improvise private alternatives. And as we mentioned earlier on, this goes along with a political development in Europe and the idea and greater popularity of republican ideas as against absolute monarchy. And it's in Britain, of course, one can debate exactly the origins of this hybrid system. But basically, you had in the Netherlands, you had an actual republic, whereas Britain had this extremely interesting and bizarre political moment. Of course, it starts from the political side, not from the economic side. We had a civil war. We killed our king. We tried a republic for a little bit, decided that didn't go very well invited the king back but it was all sort of rather unresolved and it was tied up with various religious differences and so on until this moment and by the way I mean of course there are many different interpretations of exactly what happened in 1688 but we ended up calling it the glorious revolution where we decided to install a foreign, in fact royal family but strictly to delimit the powers of the king it was a way of having your cake and eating it you could have the Authority and the law and order and the executive power of an absolute monarch. But on the other hand, you had a strong role for democracy, a bit of a strong word for it in those days. It was, of course, a very limited franchise. And really, as we were talking about earlier on, you were talking about the burgeoning City of London based Whig liberal class. And so it was a division of these, a division of powers. And as Geoffrey Ingham says in that great book, the political notion which summarizes it is this crucial notion in English politics of the king in parliament or the queen in parliament. And that's a particular idea, which in a single phrase, the king in parliament, the king in parliament is where all political power is vested in the English constitution. And so it's both it's in the king, but for them to wield this power, they have to be in parliament. So it's this hybrid system. And this is what was then mimicked Essentially, it was reproduced on the financial side, whereby we're going to have a new system with a bank, and banks had always been part of this you know, mysterious mercantile area, private area. We're going to have one of these banks that can issue money, but we're going to meld it together with the sovereign currency. So effectively, the sovereign gives away part of its franchise to these the private bank. There was only one bank in those days, but now we have a hierarchical system, of course, with a central bank at the top, and then big commercial banks underneath that, and then smaller banks underneath that. And their liabilities, the liabilities of these banks, become money which circulates in the economy, and they have all of the authority which they inherit from right up at the top of the thing, the sovereign. So the sovereign gets the benefit of all this brilliant new technology and very confidence of the people. And the private banking system gets the benefits of the authority of the sovereign and therefore the widespread circulation and all those network benefits we were talking about early on. And in many respects, it was a very ingenious solution. Obviously, it has been picked up all over the world. It's essentially how all monetary systems now operate. Although, interestingly enough, we are now again on the brink of probably some other kinds of changes. You will know that people are now talking about central bank digital currencies and this kind of thing. And those kinds of ideas really necessitate a bit of a reconfiguration of that
0: system. Now, you also have an interesting account of the collapse of the Overend bank, which I knew very little about. I've studied a lot of these crises. This one, I didn't know a lot about. And you talk about Walter Badgett. And now he's a guy who is kind of amazing that Larry Summers would reference him after the crisis, because I am sure that Badgett is not someone who's read in virtually any economics graduate program, maybe in a a history class, but certainly not in any kind of economics class. What really was the insight there, and, and why did the insight of someone like Badgett not get incorporated into mainstream economics?
1: I mean, Badgett was, of course, he'd been a practitioner of finance himself, and then he basically became, now we would call him a journalist. He was famous editor of The Economist. magazine for many years and of course he was writing at a time when economics itself was not really a formalized discipline of course there had been smith and then there had been ricardo who's really the progenitor of the kind of economics mainstream economics is like today and there was mill mill was the great sort of economist of his era but mill produced this textbook basically principles of political economy pretty sort of pedestrian thing, but it wasn't really a kind of well-defined discipline as it is today. Your question is an excellent one. Why is it that the kind of practical knowledge, understanding of money and banking in particular, why did it not become a central part of the main kind of economics curricula, you know, the curriculum at Cambridge, for example, under Alfred Marshall and so on? I'm not sure of the answer of, of why that happened. I mean, I think that you can say that someone like Keynes, so from the 20s, 1930s, and so on, again, was someone with a lot of practical experience, not direct practical experience of banking, but he had a lot of experience of being at the Treasury. And he was still someone who wrote a lot about money and banking, and of course, incorporated a lot into his economics. It's not really till the post-war, it's not really until the kind of neoclassical revolution that economics sort of really lost interest in money and it was harking back to this earlier sort of Marshallian type of economics which didn't really think much about money and banking. You and I know that one of the reasons for this is because there's a good fundamental reason to it which is that neoclassical economics sees itself as trying to look through the veil of money. It's trying to disabuse people of their commonplace, their sort of notions about what really matters to look through to real aggregates real quantities as being what really determines what matters in the economy you know in other words what they're trying to say is look when you want something when you demand something you're not actually demanding this particular quantity of money what you really want is some real good or service and let's think about why that is and how best to organize the economy so those needs are fulfilled and so on and that on its own makes a lot of sense and it's a useful formulation the problem is that in the real world we do live in a monetary economy we do live in an economy where banks are the organised things. We do actually think in terms of money. We do have to think about finance and balance sheets and stocks, financial stocks as well as just flows. So it's not actually a complete. It can't be a complete description of economic life and economic
0: activity. I guess. So I mean, is it this goal of separating out the real from the monetary aspects of the economy? And talk about Arrow Debreu and the models that flow from that. I mean, is it that? It's easier to think of money as a yardstick and a measurement rather than as a technology. I know a lot of people in finance would say, yeah, it's a technology for capital allocation, but it's really a technology for... You know belief formation and i think maybe that's something that's a lot harder to model i think and perhaps maybe it's because it's more difficult to model it's something that you can just set aside and try to assume away
1: no of course that's uh, that's absolutely correct and that is definitely a an accusation which is leveled against late 20th century economics and validly so that it got sidetracked by what was tractable mathematically tractable in models and produced a lot of very elegant results of that sort, but they're not results which actually have a lot of real-world use. So I've no doubt that is part of it. In other words, you can construct elegant models which give you a benchmark for addressing important questions about welfare and so on if you abstract from money. And that's one of the reasons why economics developed in that way And your point about why it's so difficult to include money and finance is also exactly right. Again, I go back to my very simplistic formulation or adjustment of the Fisher equation. If you want to make it more realistic, you have to unpack the V. And when you unpack the V, you're going to be talking about creditworthiness and liquidity. And those are factors in which people's beliefs and expectations play an enormous role. It's obvious in the very name of it, creditworthiness, and credit. And ever going all the way back to the 17th century, people have always known that credit is something very difficult to pin down. And we were just talking about Badgett, and this is, as it were, Badgett's really his whole shtick, if you like, in Lombard Street, his great work. The reason it's so brilliant is that he describes so well and analyzes so well what it is that contributes to credit. He describes and analyzes why the general level of credit, as he calls it, is so important to the functioning of a capitalist, of a financial economy. But you will also know, of course, this is done in a non-mathematical way. It's not done in a neat system of simultaneous equations where you can come up with neat solutions. It is necessarily discursive. And again, if we think of Keynes, we were also just talking about Keynes and how he managed to incorporate this into his thinking. A lot of the general theory is precisely about how much economic activity depends upon the state of expectations and so on. But again, that's why it was not formalized. He didn't formalize it into a discrete mathematical model with all the ends tied up. It took Hicks to come along and do that. And so that is precisely, you're absolutely right, that's the difficult bit about it. But unfortunately, it is intrinsic to the nature of money, and you understand it's intrinsic when you realize that money is credit, it is a kind of social relation, in a way that you don't understand that it's intrinsic necessarily. If you take the easy route and say, let's just treat it as if it's a thing, because then this question of what is the monetary unit, you know, we don't need to bother about that. We don't need to think about it. We certainly don't need to think about credit worthiness and so on, because if you're thinking about money as a thing, the crucial thing is it only appears on one balance sheet, the person who owns the money, just like the person who owns a commodity. The problem, when you start thinking about it more realistically, as a credit relationship is that it must exist always on two balance sheets as my asset I've got my hundred dollars I've got my hundred dollar note let's say but of course it's also a liability of the Federal Reserve or it's a liability of a commercial bank if I'm holding it in that form and so on and immediately we have to start thinking about this tricky thing which is the nature of this relationship and the factors that go into that and those factors as you say they're not really tractable Mathematically, you're suddenly in the realm of sociology, history, trying to work out what kinds of things determine that relationship. Doesn't mean that you can't describe them, doesn't mean you can't analyze them rigorously, by the way. Someone like Badgett is very rigorous, but you can't do it in the manner which we got used to doing it in economics.
0: Now, in in the book, you said that the 2007 2008 crisis really highlighted that this kind of quid pro quo had more or less been replaced by a quid pro nihilo and that the central bank and the government was not simply providing lender of last resort provisioning of liquidity but also was guaranteeing credit i think that when we look at the bailouts of northern rock and other financial institutions in the u.s it seems like that certainly rings true On the other hand, of course, I think that the Fed wound up making money on all of those bailouts, right? So how how should we make sense of the aftermath of the 2008 crisis? Is quantitative easing an indicator of a breakdown in this quid pro quo?
1: Yeah, I mean, that comes a bit to what we were just describing. It comes to the very insubstantial and difficult to pin down nature of credit because, again, this distinction between... When is a central bank providing liquidity? When is bank, even a bank that's opting to support a company that's run into problems and is in financial distress? At what point are you offering liquidity assistance? And at what point does that become bailout and credit subsidy, basically? As Keynes would have said, that depends upon the state of expectation, unfortunately. It's not, it's, you know, you can't actually define it in real terms unless you think that you can know the future with absolute certainty and, and therefore fix these things. It, it all depends. So what can look like its uh, liquidity assistance can suddenly turn into a credit subsidy if everyone loses confidence in the business that's being supported or the bank that's being supported. And the same process can go in reverse, which would be when you look like you're offering a big credit subsidy, but in fact, you end up coming out in the black. So actually, you were just providing liquidity assistance, and we were all too pessimistic at the time. But I mean, the first thing I think in answer to your question is that you will always have in this hybrid system where you are effectively ceding part of the sovereign's sovereignty. You're ceding part of its authority. You're saying we're going to allow, we're going we're to give a franchise to the banking system to produce money. We're going to keep it under control through all kinds of regulation and through the central bank at the core of the system. But we know it's pretty elastic. You know? And most importantly, we know that because we live in a free economy people will always be improvising and coming up with new ideas and they will inevitably probably start doing things which we are not keeping an eye on and because of the interconnected nature of the banking system we're inevitably going to come to a problem at some point if it's suddenly revealed which was what happened in 2007 it was suddenly revealed that There were an enormous quantity of liabilities outside of the regulated banking system which effectively were operating as money and which couldn't be allowed to simply go to to zero. And therefore, we're going to have to take it over again. That's the sort of quid pro nihilo aspect to it. And so can this happen again? I think it's almost certain to, to happen again. It's a game of cat and mouse between regulators and people trying to escape regulators. The whole crypto experience is an interesting one. Yeah, there's of course a lot of skullduggery and nonsense in the crypto world and has been over the last five or 10 years. But one thing in their favor is that when they said when it all blows up, they won't get a bailout. That's generally true. They basically did all blow up and they didn't get a bailout. Now, what that means is that the taxpayer didn't step in. It does unfortunately mean a lot of, I'm sure, very undeserving people who didn't deserve it lost a lot of money on crypto precisely because they weren't bailed out by the government so all all the retail investors as it were in in crypto so it is possible as long as you don't have these links to the conventional banking system and that's why regulation of those parts of the system which are connected to the conventional banking system is so important because they really do have something they are getting the quid and so there needs to be a quo that turned back the other
0: way. Well, in the book, you talk about some proposals to rein in the financial system, right? And people talk about narrow banks. Nowadays, we're talking about central bank digital currencies. And it seems like if we were to move toward the central bank digital currency, this would curtail the bank's ability to create money. Would this just drive liquidity creation into an expanded kind of shadow banking system, right? I mean, is there sort of a, law of thermodynamics, which says that if you push down risk in one place, it's just going to pop up somewhere else?
1: It will be a matter of choice, you know, whether to allow that to happen. I mean, it's going to be the same dilemma it ever was, the one we were just describing. I think that the the interesting thing about this moment where we are now and the technologies which are developed, which would allow central bank digital currency, which is, as you've said, it's kind of a an even simpler and more extreme version of narrow banking. You could set it up so that central banks, you'd have to wind back a bit for some central banks the composition of the asset side of their balance sheet because it used to be the case that of course central banks only had on the asset side of their balance sheet highest quality government collateral and so on not quite true anymore with some of these sort of QE programs in some places but anyway you could say look here's a central bank and on the asset side of its balance sheet it has only the highest quality government bonds and then anyone can have an account at the central bank and that's the CBDC. And then you'd have all other kinds of longer term credit provision done through various capital markets, institutions of one sort or another. And they would take their chances with liquidity transformation. They'd be free if they wanted to have short term liabilities, funding, long term portfolios, but they really would be on their own. And you announced that was absolutely the case. Or alternatively, they would match much better and not do liquidity transformation, and therefore not run the risk of running into these liquidity problems. I think people can envisage that. The enormous difficulty is envisaging how you get from where we are today to that without some sort of catastrophic rapid changes. If you announce this tomorrow,
0: surely there would be a massive run on all commercial banks. But would it even be credible, right? I mean, if you have all of these entities out there doing liquidity transformation, then, you know, you, had, you have a panic and the government's still going to have to step in, right? Yes.
1: And I think that there's a really important point underlying this about, about the nature of money, which is that the whole point of banking and its historical origin is precisely the flexibility of the balance sheet of the banks. You, the whole way that the capitalistic economy works, what is useful about banks and the reason they exist is precisely that they are able to expand and contract their balance sheets in line with the needs of trade, and that you don't have to do this in a much more clunky way through some capital market issue, issuing, subscribing, let's get more capital in. That That's all right if you're doing some longer term project, we're going to have a try and raise money, raise equity, raise debt, sell some bonds, sell some equity, and so on. But that doesn't make sense for if you think about trade finance, which is the sort of shortest term, that's the core of the of banking. It doesn't make sense on that kind of timescale. You're not going to do that. So instead, you have an institution which can magically increase, expand, or contract its balance sheet depending upon the needs of trade. And that need is never going to go away in a capitalist economy. And you know you need to have that somewhere. Now, that's not going to be the central bank. I don't think they're going to start doing that. In fact, I mean, that's the whole point. They're not going to start doing taking credit risk and doing trade finance, that kind of thing. And if it can't be done in the capital markets institutions, because they're too clunky and too slow moving, then where is it going to happen? It's it's not going to happen anywhere and it doesn't seem to make any sense. You couldn't operate a capitalist economy. Now, if you talk to the technological optimists, utopians, they will say, and who's to gainsay them, that computation and technology and so on will get to the point where, in fact, you could operate these capital markets institutions And and they could operate in such a rapid, automated way that they could substitute in this way a kind of real bills. But I mean, it doesn't exist at the moment. And
0: so who knows if it ever will? Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical. Risky. (laughs) Felix, thanks so much for joining me. This book's great. I actually had a friend who is at a large central banking institution who read the book and realized that he had somehow managed to jump out of the pool of water <laughs> for at least a moment and figure out what it was, in fact, he was doing. So I recommend it to central bankers out there as well as everybody else. Books Money, The Unauthorized Biography. Thanks, Felix. Thank you very much, indeed. Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast, produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.